In part 1, we saw how the once strong anti-Persian Athenian-Spartan alliance that had once saved the Greek mainland from foreign domination more or less collapsed. Not only this, but the two sides and several of their allies had engaged in skirmishes and a few nefarious acts intended to undermine the other. Though there were many charges against Athens, perhaps the event that crossed a red line was an Athenian alliance made with the city-state of Corcyra, a move that incensed the Corinthians, who, after the Spartans, were the most powerful and influential members of the Peloponnesian League. After some deliberation, Sparta and its Peloponnesian allies eventually came to the conclusion that war was necessary to keep Athens in line. And now, part two of the Peloponnesian War podcast. Despite all the saber-rattling on the Peloponnesian side, the reality was that neither they nor the Athenians and their Delian League allies really wanted to go to war. The Spartans had ample domestic problems of their own, such as preventing another Helot insurrection, and didn't have a lot of resources to focus on foreign entanglements. In fact, the Spartan king Archidamos had essentially made such an argument before the entire Spartan assembly, explicitly stating that they currently didn't have the resources especially ships and money, to directly challenge the Athenians and win. He also knew, as did many Spartans, that the Athenians were not an immediate threat. While the admission of Corcyra into the Delian League alliance only augmented their strength on the high seas and potentially threatened members of the Peloponnesian League and their interests, as far as the rather isolationist Spartans were concerned, Athens's navy did not directly affect them. The city of Sparta itself was close to the heart of the Peloponnese, and safe from any naval attack. The Spartans were also first and foremost a land power. Their strength was in their soldiers, who had the reputation of being the very best in the Greek-speaking world. Thus, they rightly believed that the Athenians would be foolish, actually suicidal, to send an army to attempt to take Sparta, or even large sections of Laconia, without serious losses. As for some of Sparta's more strategic ports, such as Pylos, these too were less attractive than they seemed on the surface. Having many friendly ports of their own, even in the west, the Athenians could make do without them. And even if they did attempt to take over some of them, they'd have an extremely difficult time holding them in the long run. If the Athenians were one thing, it was that they were extremely practical, and wouldn't without a really valid reason attack any Spartan ports. Thus far, Sparta hadn't given them one, so why now give them a reason to disrupt trade with Sparta's allies in southern Italy and Sicily? Even though Sparta and its Peloponnesian allies couldn't match the Athenian navy, their naval forces were not insignificant. They could threaten Athens's money supply by disrupting commerce in the Aegean or inciting dissatisfied Delian League members to revolt. At the time, the Athenians and their allies are believed to have had a navy of between 300 to 450 ships, 
versus the 100 to 150 that the Spartans could call upon. While tensions with the Athenians were high and relations at an all-time low, ultimately, a military conflict with Athens wasn't in Sparta's interest. In fact, war was only agreed upon because many of the more hawkish elements within the Spartan leadership felt obligated to come to the aid of the always complaining and easily offended Corinthians. Otherwise, it's doubtful that they would have actually considered going into a wider war with Athens. Interestingly, it wasn't the Spartans or even the Corinthians who lit the flame that would engulf the Greek-speaking world into war, but an act of aggression by the Thebans. Thebes was the most powerful city-state in Veotia, as well as the head of an alliance known as the Veotian League. Most in Veotia, especially the Thebans, were no fans of Athens and in the past had fought many battles against them for control of central Greece. However, one city, Plataea, was a member of the Delian League and had been a staunch Athenian ally for decades. Plataea was a small city of perhaps only 1,000 citizens. During the Persian Wars, the fields outside Plataea had been the site of the last great Greek face-off against Xerxes' forces under the command of his general, Mardonius, who also fell in battle there. Since then, not only had Plataea formalized its alliance with Athens, but even the Spartans had pledged to defend the city should it ever come under attack again. Not so the Thebans, who had allied with the Persian coalition against the Athenian-Spartan alliance. Though the Persians were gone, the Thebans were still extremely powerful and wanted the city of Plataea for several reasons. One was for their own security, Plataea was only eight miles from Thebes and could be used as an Athenian base for future attacks against them. In addition, Plataea flanked the only road between Veotia and the Peloponnese that did not pass through Athenian territory. Should the Athenians happen to place a garrison there, the Thebans would be cut off from their Spartan and Corinthian allies, at least by land. Another difference was that the Plataeans, like the Athenians, had a democratic form of government, while the Thebans were ruled by an oligarchy. In March of 431 BC, a force of about 300 hoplites from Thebes entered Plataea and demanded that the Plataeans break their alliance with Athens and instead join the Theban-led Boeotian League. Thucydides describes how the hoplites entered into the city and... What happened next? The gates were opened to them by a Plataean named Nauclitus, who, with his party, had invited them in, meaning to put to death the citizens of the opposite party, bring over the city to Thebes, and thus obtain power for themselves. This had been arranged through Eurymachus, son of Leontiades, a person of great influence at Thebes. For Plataea had always been at variance with Thebes, and the latter, foreseeing that war was at hand, wished to surprise her old enemy in time of peace, before hostilities had actually broken out. Indeed, this was how they got in so easily without being observed, as no guard had been posted. Things, though, didn't work out in the way that the Plataean conspirators had hoped. 
Initially, they wanted to take the city and convince its population to join the Vyoshin League without any bloodshed. After the soldiers had taken up positions in the Agora, those who had invited them in wished them to set to work at once and go to their enemies' houses. This, however, the Thebans refused to do, but determined to make a conciliatory proclamation and, if possible, to come to a friendly understanding with the citizens. Their herald accordingly invited any who wished to resume their old place in the Federation of All Veotians to take up positions beside them, for they thought that in this way the city would readily join them. The Thebans had announced their intentions, and at first the citizens of Plataea didn't know what to make of their rather forced offer. After all, their alliance with Athens had served them well, and most weren't too fond of the prospect of being under the thumb of Thebes. Despite the dark and rainy night, it was clear to many in Plataea that the Thebans had sent a much smaller force than would be needed should they have chosen to hold the city. Not only this, but the darkness and heavy rain, along with the Thebans' lack of knowledge of the layout of Plataea's city streets, made them extremely vulnerable. It's then that the seemingly unimaginable happened. The people of Plataea, not just the men, but also the women and even slaves, surrounded and then attacked the Theban hoplites. Thucydides gives the accounts of those who supposedly witnessed the melee. The Thebans, finding themselves outwitted, immediately closed up to repel all attacks made upon them. Twice, or thrice, they beat back their assailants. But the men shouted and charged them. The women and slaves screamed and yelled from the houses, and pelted them with stones and tiles. Besides, it had been raining hard all night, and so, at last, their courage gave way, and they turned and fled through the city. Most of the fugitives were quite ignorant of the right ways out, and this, with the mud, and the darkness caused by the moon being in her last quarter, and the fact that the pursuers knew their way about and could easily stop their escape, proved fatal to many. The only gate open was the one by which they had entered, and this was shut by one of the Plataeans driving the spike of a javelin into a bar instead of the bolt, so that even here there was no longer any means of exit. They were now chased all over the city. Some got on the wall and threw themselves over, in most cases with a fatal result. One party managed to find a deserted gate, and obtaining an axe from a woman cut through the bar, but as they were soon observed, only a few succeeded in getting out. Others, scattered about in different parts of the city, were destroyed. The most numerous and compact body rushed into a large building next to the city wall. The doors on the side of the street happened to be open, and the Thebans fancied that they were the gates of the city, and that there was a passage right through to the outside. The Plataeans, seeing their enemies in a trap, now consulted whether they should set fire to the building and burn them just as they were, or whether there was anything else that they could do with them, until at length these and the rest of the Theban survivors found wandering about the city agreed to an unconditional surrender of themselves and their arms to the Plataeans. 
Surrendering was all that the survivors could do to avoid being massacred. But why did the Thebans fail? They had sent 300 men as messengers in the hope that the Plataeans would know they meant business and seriously consider their offer. They didn't expect to fight, otherwise they would have done so as they entered the city, or at least arrested those belonging to Plataea's anti-Theban faction. Had the Thebans grossly underestimated the number of troops they would have needed to force the Plataeans to abandon their alliance with Athens? Perhaps not. It turns out that a group of Theban reinforcements was also on the way, but the rain had flooded one of the rivers they needed to cross, thus delaying them. Had they arrived sooner, perhaps the Plataeans may have thought twice before unleashing hell upon their uninvited guests. By daybreak, the advancing group of Theban reinforcements had heard about what had just transpired in Plataea, and pressed onward to see if they could save any of their surviving brethren. Since it was during peacetime and the night attack unexpected, there were still Plataeans outside the walls in the small villages and on the farms that supported the city. The Thebans intended to capture some of these unsuspecting people on their way to the city's gates most of whom had probably just awoken and were getting ready to do their daily tasks. The villagers likely had no idea of what had just transpired within the walls of their mother city. The Thebans' plan was to use these Plataeans as leverage and perhaps force a settlement as well as the release of their comrades. The Plataeans in the city expected this and sent a messenger to the Thebans threatening that unless they left Plataean territory, they would kill the remaining Theban hostages. City-states took the safety of their citizens extremely seriously, and the Thebans withdrew on the belief that the Plataeans would be true to their word. It's one thing to negotiate with other, generally level-headed politicians, but quite another with an emboldened, emotional, and outraged civilian mob. What exactly happened next is hotly debated. Thucydides gives us both sides' version of the events. But the Plataeans, becoming alarmed for their fellow citizens outside the city, sent a herald to the Thebans, reproaching them for their unscrupulous attempt to seize their city in time of peace, and warning them against any outrage on those outside. Should the warning be disregarded, they threatened to put to death the men they had in their hands. But added to that, on the Thebans retiring from their territory, they would surrender the prisoners to their friends. This is the Theban account of the matter, and they say that they had an oath given to them. The Plataeans, on the other hand, do not admit any promise of an immediate surrender, but make it contingent upon subsequent negotiation. The oath they deny altogether. Be this as it may, upon the Thebans retiring from their territory without committing any injury, the Plataeans hastily got in whatever they had in the country and immediately put the men to death. The prisoners were 180 in number. War is brutal, and soldiers commit atrocities. This is to be expected. However, the slaughter in cold blood of the Theban prisoners by the Plataeans had few precedents, and even to most Greeks of that day, there would have been few justifications for such violence. 
The Plataeans, at least those who slaughtered the prisoners, saw it quite differently. For them, it was the Thebans who had done the unthinkable by entering their city in the manner that they did, and threatening them during a time of peace. Before the slaughter, word about what was transpiring in Plataea had already reached Athens. Pericles and other Athenian leaders quickly dispatched an envoy to help defuse the situation before the Plataeans could make any rash, emotional decisions. After all, the prisoners could be used as hostages to prevent any future Theban reprisal. A force of 80 hoplites was also sent to help bolster Plataea's defenses, but by the time they'd arrived, it was too late. The Plataeans had already executed their Theban prisoners. Now, there was no going back. The Thebans would demand revenge, and if successful in taking Plataea, would slaughter all the men and sell any women and children into slavery. As Plataea was their ally, the Athenians sent most of the women and children to safety within Delian League territory. 400 able-bodied men from Plataea remained to defend their city along with 110 women who were tasked with baking bread. With the newly arrived Athenian hoplites joining their ranks, the city now had a garrison of 480 men to protect it. Would this, though, be enough to defend Plataea from the now furious Thebans whose honor demanded revenge? And how would the Thebans' Peloponnesian allies respond to this new, dangerous turn of events? Though Thebes' attempt to take Plataea was also wrong, it had been the Plataeans who had drawn first blood by attacking and killing the Theban hoplites and then slaughtering those who had surrendered. Though Sparta and the Peloponnesian League had to respond, they also didn't want to overextend themselves, and so they sought what they thought would be the quickest path to victory, an invasion of Attica. The plan was to pillage the countryside around Athens in order to force the Athenians to either face them in a pitched battle or immediately discuss terms for a surrender. If they chose instead to hide behind their network of seemingly impregnable defensive walls, then perhaps the Athenian aristocrats and other landholding citizens would put pressure on their government to seek a settlement with the Peloponnesian League to avoid the destruction of their farms, orchards, and vineyards. In the meantime, Sparta's allies as far away as Sicily were tasked with building up to 500 new ships to help lessen the Athenian advantage at sea. Having the gift of hindsight, we today know that the Peloponnesian War was one of the bloodiest and most destructive conflicts in the history of the ancient world. Seriously, if you thought that the incident at Plataea was cruel, gruesome, and lacked any semblance of civility, then you'll be truly shocked by what's to come. Many of those whose lives were about to be completely altered also didn't foresee the death and destruction that was about to take place. In fact, by reading the following lines from Thucydides, one might think that they were reading about an upcoming sporting event or tournament like the Olympics or World Cup, rather than a war. Zeal is always at its height at the commencement of an undertaking, and on this particular occasion, the Peloponnesus and Athens were both full of young men whose inexperience made them eager to take up arms, while the rest of Hellas stood straining with excitement 
at the conflict of its leading cities. Everywhere, predictions were being recited and oracles being chanted by such persons as collect them, and this not only in the contending cities. Most, it seemed, were also cheering for Sparta. Men's feelings inclined much more to the Spartans, especially as they proclaimed themselves the liberators of Hellas. No private or public effort that could help them in speech or action was omitted. So general was the indignation felt against Athens, whether by those who wished to escape from her empire or who were apprehensive of being absorbed by it. Such were the preparations and such the feelings with which the contest opened. Perhaps fortunate for the Peloponnesian side was that the wise but cautious king, Archidamos, was made the supreme commander of the League's armed forces, at least on the ground. As mentioned earlier, Archidamos was not in favor of hastily beginning a war against Athens, but as one of Sparta's two kings, he was tasked with leading Peloponnesian forces into battle. His was an impressive coalition that included men and ships from Corinth and most of the other major city-states of the Peloponnese, the major exceptions being Sparta's great rival, Argos, and several cities in Archaea. There were also many who came from beyond the confines of the Peloponnese, including Megarians, Locrians, Veotians, Phocaeans, Ambraciots, Leucadians, and Anactorians. In the summer of 431 BC, Archidamos gathered his leading generals, officers, and fighting men around the Isthmus of Corinth, where he made one of the greatest speeches of his lifetime. Peloponnesians and allies, our fathers made many campaigns, both within and without the Peloponnesus, and the elder men among us here are not without experience in war. Yet, we have never set out with a larger force than the present, and if our numbers and efficiency are remarkable, so also is the power of the state against which we march. We ought not, then, to show ourselves inferior to our ancestors, or unequal to our own reputation, for the hopes and attention of all Hellas are bent upon the present effort, and its sympathy is with the enemy of the hated Athens. Therefore, numerous as the invading army may appear to be, and certain as some may think it that our adversary will not meet us in the field, this is no sort of justification for the least negligence upon the march. But the officers and men of each particular city should always be prepared for the advent of danger in their own area. The course of war cannot be foreseen, and its attacks are generally dictated by the impulse of the moment and where overweening self-confidence has despised preparation, a wise apprehension has often been able to make head against superior numbers. Considering, therefore, the power of the state against which we are marching, and the greatness of the reputation which, according to the event, we shall win or lose for our ancestors and ourselves, remember as you follow where you may be led to regard discipline and vigilance as of the first importance, and to obey with alacrity the orders transmitted to you. As nothing contributes so much to the credit and safety of an army 
as when its soldiers, although numerous, quickly act on the orders transmitted to them. Despite the Spartans and Peloponnesians being ready, and some could say even eager for war, Archidamos sent an emissary to Athens in a last-ditch effort to avert one. Perhaps, upon seeing the massive Peloponnesian force on their very doorstep, the Athenians would swallow their pride and reconsider their past actions against Megara and Corinthian interests. However, the Spartan emissary was sent away on Pericles' orders. The Athenians refused to meet with any Peloponnesian delegation to discuss peace when the Spartan side had clearly amassed for war on their very borders. The Athenians weren't going to cave in to Spartan demands. However, they weren't going to fight either, at least not in a direct confrontation. Pericles and the other Athenian generals knew that they were at a disadvantage if they fought hoplite to hoplite. Estimates are that the Peloponnesian League had perhaps three to even four times the men, and especially the Spartans amongst them were the most fearsome and capable soldiers in all of the Greek-speaking world. The odds were against Athens in any pitched battle against the Spartan-led alliance. A pitched battle, though, had the possibility of ending the war rather quickly, which was the Spartan goal. Pericles, on the other hand, had decided to play the long game. He felt that it would be best to hold out behind Athens' long walls and let the Peloponnesian side attack and at least initially control the countryside. Eventually, they would tire and retreat. It was a rather novel strategy, but many in Athens were extremely apprehensive of its execution and potential for success. Having their local food supply cut off, let alone the long-term damage to their homes, fields, and orchards, most of the leading men in Athens would have offered to have at least negotiated some sort of settlement with the Peloponnesian side. However, this was Pericles. If Pericles had a plan, then most, even if they didn't agree with it, would go along with it. Such was the stature and influence that Pericles had. Thucydides called him the foremost amongst the Athenians, and the most powerful in speech and action, along with dubbing him the first citizen of Athens. A whole series could be made just on the life of Pericles, for he was both one of the greatest generals and statesmen in the history of Athens. He was also a great champion of democracy, although many argue that this primarily pertained to Athens and its citizenry, since it was also under him that the Delian League basically transformed into an Athenian-controlled empire, whose members ended up having little autonomy. This empire, though, is what Pericles believed would now enable Athens to withstand Peloponnesian aggression, since it allowed it to both import food and collect taxes, as well as other forms of revenue, from not just the Aegean, but also from former Greek colonies in the Black Sea region. Thus, even with the destruction of Athens' own farms and orchards, the city and its people would still be able to survive on other sources of food. Archidamus thought otherwise. In fact, he felt that Athens's prized fields, orchards, and vineyards were of such importance to the city, and more importantly, 
its aristocratic landholding class, that instead of destroying them, he held some of the best farms hostage to hopefully give him some leverage in any future negotiations. Occupying such land would also engender a refugee crisis by forcing those fleeing the Spartan alliance to hide behind Athens' defensive walls, which would strain the city's resources even more. Despite a lot of opposition and criticism from some of Athens' most influential citizens, many of whom could probably see in the distance their property being ravaged by Peloponnesian forces, Pericles showed a tremendous amount of restraint and refused to budge with regard to his strategy. The Athenians also made use of their cavalry to constantly harass Archidamus's men, which helped to deny the enemy the ability to remain in one place for very long. Though the majority of their forces remained behind their city's walls, this doesn't mean that the Athenians simply stood idle. While their lands were being ravaged, they sent a large fleet of perhaps 100 ships and 1,000 hoplites to harass parts of the Peloponnesian coast, as well as areas within Corinthian jurisdiction. In addition, the Athenians strengthened their position in the northeast by solidifying alliances with King Setalkis of Thrace and even Perdiccas of Macedon. All of these show that Pericles wasn't a man of inaction, but just strategic about the actions that he took. Though the Athenian campaigns were mostly successful, there were also a sizable number of casualties. Whenever this happened, the dead were generally brought back to what was then a suburb of Athens for burial, with a eulogy given by a respected member of Athenian society to commemorate them. On this occasion, as had probably occurred several times before, Pericles was chosen to give such an address. Along with honoring the dead, he also reminded the living why Athens and its system of governance were unique, why they were fighting this war, and how important it was that they remain committed to the cause. Some have compared Pericles' funeral oration to Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, though it was much longer and better received at the time it was given. Excerpts of it, at least according to Thucydides, are as follows. I shall begin with our ancestors. It is both just and proper that they should have the honor of the first mention on an occasion like the present. They dwelt in the country without break in the succession, from generation to generation, and handed it down free to the present time by their valor. And if our more remote ancestors deserve praise, much more do our own fathers, who added to their inheritance the empire which we now possess, and spared no pains to be able to leave their acquisitions to us of the present generation. But what was the road by which we reached our position? What the form of government under which our greatness grew? Our constitution does not copy the laws of neighboring states. We are rather a pattern to others than imitators ourselves. Its administration favors the many instead of the few. This is why it is called a democracy. If we look to the laws, they afford equal justice to all in their private differences. If to social standing, advancement in public life falls to reputation for capacity, class considerations not being allowed to interfere with merit. 
nor again does poverty bar the way. If a man is able to serve the state, he is not hindered by the obscurity of his condition. Pericles goes on to praise the city of Athens, its institutions, the Athenian way of life, and all that it affords to both its citizens and the world at large. And then he gets into the actual eulogy, praising the men who unflinchingly put their lives on the line and paid the ultimate sacrifice for the sake of Athens and all she represents. He also stresses why those Athenians who are still alive must also be willing to do the same. Indeed, if I have dwelt at some length upon the character of our country, it has been to show that our stake in the struggle is not the same as theirs who have no such blessings to lose. And also that the eulogy of the men over whom I am now speaking might be definite proofs established. That eulogy is now in a great measure complete. For the Athens that I have celebrated is only what the heroism of these and their like have made her. Men whose fame, unlike that of most Hellenes, will be found to be no greater than what they deserve. Thus, choosing to die resisting rather than to live submitting, they fled not only from dishonor, but met danger face to face, and after one brief moment, while at the summit of their fortune, left behind them not their fear, but their glory. Though it was an incredible speech, and perhaps what was needed to increase Athenian morale, the reality was that despite the sacrifices of the Athenians who had died, not much had changed on the battle map. The Peloponnesian side could still ravage Attica at will, with Athenian attacks elsewhere doing little to draw them away. In fact, what actually forced Archidamos and his men to eventually retreat were not Athenian counterattacks in other parts of Greece, but simply running out of food or new targets to plunder. And so ended the first year of the war. With the need to import food and other necessities, along with the damage done to their homes and farms, as well as ongoing military operations, such as the siege of Potidaea, the war was turning out to be much more expensive than had originally been estimated. Though the city of Athens was wealthy and the government had a large reserve fund, those in charge of the Athenian treasury estimated that the city might be able to hold out for a few years, but not indefinitely. Pericles knew this, and also believed that Archidamos would return the following season to renew his attacks on Attica. In May of 430 BC, Peloponnesian League forces under Archidamos did return, and this time, seeing that yet again the Athenians weren't going to face them in an open battle, didn't hesitate to destroy as much as they could, which included not only farms up to the very walls of Athens, but also some of the coastal regions of Attica. After 40 days, they ran out of supplies and returned back to the Peloponnese. Archidamos and his forces weren't the only enemies lurking about. A new, unseen foe that no amount of arms could defeat in battle reared its ugly head. This was the plague. The exact type of illness wasn't and still isn't known. Some have speculated that it may have come from Egypt, 
and then spread throughout the eastern Mediterranean world. Due to so many people from the countryside now being crammed in Athens due to Peloponnesian attacks, the plague easily spread from one person to another. By the summer of 430 BC, the plague began to wreak havoc on Athens, and this, along with Archidamos's second invasion of Attica, led many Athenians to doubt Pericles' ability to lead them. Thucydides tells us, After the second invasion of the Peloponnesians, a change came over the spirit of the Athenians. Their land had now been twice laid waste, and war and pestilence at once pressed heavy upon them. They began to find fault with Pericles as the author of the war and the cause of all their misfortunes, and became eager to come to terms with Sparta and actually sent ambassadors thither, who did not, however, succeed in their mission. Their despair was now complete, and all vented itself upon Pericles. Being the great orator that he was, Pericles called the Athenian assembly together and addressed its citizens, telling them not to lose hope, and also that his strategy was working. It wasn't enough. For many in the ancient world, Greece included, plagues were divine retribution for human misdeeds and transgressions. Perhaps Pericles had insulted the gods with his stubbornness and arrogance in challenging the Spartans and the Peloponnesian League, especially when it seemed that initially they had opted for a peaceful settlement to their differences with the Athenians. There was also a prophecy that with a war against a Dorian people would come a plague. Sparta was a Dorian nation. As further proof, the plague had not entered the Peloponnese, implying that the gods perhaps favored that region over Athens and Attica. For many, even some of his allies, Pericles was to blame for this current bout of misfortune. Athens's first citizen did his best to defend himself, telling his people, If you were persuaded by me to go to war because you thought I had the qualities necessary for leadership at least moderately more than other men, it is not right that I should now be blamed for wrongdoing. While this may have caused the anger of some to abate, Pericles' enemies still sought to marginalize him, and so he was accused of embezzlement, a charge that most knew he was innocent of. It was all a ploy by his political enemies who actually managed to get him convicted. Though the punishment could sometimes be death, Pericles was instead given a heavy fine, which his friends helped him to pay off. The damage, though, had been done. Pericles was no longer able to hold public office. Such was the current fate of a man who had been the main light and champion of Athens and its people for decades. With the dismissal of Pericles, those who had opposed his strategy now reached out to the Spartans to discuss terms for a peace deal. The Spartans, though, refused. With the devastation of the plague on Athens and the marginalization of Pericles, they had the upper hand and could make demands of the Athenians. Just what these demands may have been are not stated by ancient historians, but modern scholars believe that the Spartans likely demanded that the Athenians leave Potidaea, restore independence to Aegina, revoke the Megaran Decree, and, most importantly, give up their empire and allow its members to become free states. The first three may have been possible, 
but dismantling their empire was a non-starter, and something that even the most dovish of Athenian factions would never have agreed to. While there was now no incentive for the Spartans to make peace with Athens, they also didn't have a viable plan for a decisive victory. Peloponnesian League invasions had proved that the Athenians could show great restraint and hold out for long periods of time against aggression in Attica. They also knew that once the plague subsided, the Athenians would return to their ships and command the seas. The Peloponnesians needed a stronger navy, but currently didn't have the money to fund it. And so, ambassadors were sent to the great king of Persia, Artaxerxes I, in an effort to seek an alliance. However, when the ambassadors arrived in Thrace, King Sitalkes, a staunch Athenian ally, had them apprehended and sent back to Athens, where they were immediately executed without trial and even denied the proper burial rites. The more bellicose Athenians, who now influenced the assembly, claimed that this was in response to Spartan brutality elsewhere. But the incident shows just how fragile and fluid the political situation in Athens had become. On one end, the peacemakers were trying to come to an agreement with Sparta and put the war behind them, while on the other, warmongers, led by the brutish Cleon, sought to go on the offensive against the Peloponnesian League. It also reveals just how marginalized Pericles and his political allies had become, for had they still maintained their influence over the government and the assembly, they wouldn't have allowed such an atrocity to have occurred. To their credit, though, the hawkish faction of the assembly did take actions that eventually resulted in Athenian victories elsewhere. One of these was sending the great Athenian admiral and general, Formio, to successfully harass Corinthian ships and fortify the positions of Athens' allies in the Gulf of Corinth, especially around the strategic town of Naupactus. The other event that worked in their favor was the capture of Potidaea in the winter of 430-429 BC. The city, which had been under siege and blockaded for nearly two and a half years, had proved to be a black hole for the Athenian treasury. The Potidaeans, who were once amongst the wealthiest members of the Delian League, had become so desperate that in order to survive, some of them had been forced into cannibalism. Thucydides tells us, There were no provisions left, and so far had distress for food gone in Potidaea that, besides a number of other horrors, instances had even occurred of people having eaten one another. So, in this extremity, they at last made proposals for capitulating to the Athenian generals in command against them. The generals accepted their proposals, seeing the sufferings of the army in so exposed a position, besides which the state had already spent 2,000 talents upon the siege. The terms of the capitulation were as follows. Free passage out for themselves, their children, wives, and auxiliaries, with one garment apiece, the women with two, and a fixed sum of money for their journey. The warmongers in Athens, though, were incensed by the supposedly generous terms and treatment that the Potidaeans had received by surrendering. 
They felt that the generals, all of whom were political allies of Pericles, had been too lenient on the enemy and needed to be brought to trial themselves for not consulting the assembly before accepting Potidaea's surrender. It was divisive Athenian politics, as usual, and in the end, no indictment was made because sentiment in Athens was changing. With Sparta refusing to come to any sort of reasonable agreement to end hostilities, the efforts of the peacemaking faction were now discredited. However, citizens also feared that the leaders of the warmongering party, such as Cleon, might lead them down an even deadlier road by launching grand military campaigns at a time when Athens had still not recovered from the plague and wasn't ready for such action. In their darkest hour, the Athenians needed sound leadership, wisdom, and moderation. Basically, they needed Pericles. In the spring of 429 BC, the Athenians elected Pericles to be their general once again. However, the man who had been kicked out of office barely six months before was not the same. Pericles was dying. Once in office, though, Pericles' leadership seems to have brought about a new vigor in Athenian campaigns abroad, and even a few victories. Unfortunately, he would not live to see their results. He died in September of 429 BC. Though the war would go on for another two decades, the death of Pericles may have arguably been Athens' greatest loss during the entire conflict. It's hard to put into words just how dear and important Pericles was to the people of Athens, though Thucydides does his best to convey this in his history of the Peloponnesian War. He was the best man for all the needs of the state. For as long as he was at the head of the state during the peace, he pursued a moderate and conservative policy, and in his time its greatness was at its height. When the war broke out, here also he seems to have rightly gauged the power of his country, and the correctness of his foresight concerning the war became better known after his death. He told them to wait quietly, to pay attention to their marine, to attempt no new conquests, and to expose the city to no hazards during the war. And doing this promised them a favorable result. What they did was the very contrary, allowing private ambitions and private interests in matters apparently quite foreign to the war to lead them into projects unjust both to themselves and to their allies. Projects whose success would only conduce to the honor and advantage of private persons and whose failure entailed certain disaster on the country in the war. The causes of this are not far to seek. Pericles, indeed, by his rank, ability, and known integrity, was enabled to exercise an independent control over the multitude. In short, to lead them instead of being led by them. For as he never sought power by improper means, he was never compelled to flatter them but on the contrary enjoyed so high an estimation that he could afford to anger them by contradiction. Whenever he saw them unreasonably and insolently elated, he would with a word reduce them to alarm. On the other hand, if they fell victims to a panic, 
he could at once restore them to confidence. Who now was left to guide Athens, its people and its empire, now that Pericles was gone? Despite having many political enemies who were jealous of the adoration and the admiration that the average Athenian felt for him, Pericles was overall a unifying figure in Athenian society. With his death, that unity began to unravel, and given the current situation, there could have been no worse time for it. The war would only get worse, and without Pericles' moderating influence, would reach new levels of brutality and loss of life. We'll see how the war went after Pericles in part 3 of this podcast series. Stay tuned. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and I hope you enjoyed it. I'd also really like to thank Grandkeck69, Yap de Graf, Pasta Frola, Michael Lewis, Daniel Allen, Danny Van Eck, Wenix TV, Robert Morgan, Frank, Tim Lane, Sebastian Hurtado Correa, Michael Trudell, John Scarberry, Franz Robbins, Brendan Redman, Faridun Dadachanji, Jimmy Daruwala, Sher Cam, Farhad Kama, and all of the channel's patrons on Patreon for helping to support this and all future content. Check out the benefits to being a Patreon member, and if you'd like to join, feel free to click the link in the video description. You can also follow History with Sai on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks again for tuning into the History with Sai podcast. Take care.